Hey, Patrick, you want to hear a joke? Sure, Sandy. Sure. I'd love a good laugh. What has four wheels and flies? A garbage truck. to the most porous podcast you're going to find along your travels of the tubes of the internet, I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. It's a pleasure to welcome you aboard. Of course, I'm your captain, Captain Eric. Please take a seat and uh, and sit with me because this is legitimately one of the most hardest episodes for me to record since the start of this podcast. That introduction podcast, episode zero, was re-recorded four or five times out of just this over-perfectionist in me. And uh, it, it just, sometimes I, I work against myself in that way. And since then, I really haven't had a, an episode that felt difficult to record than this. This one is is right up there. The reasoning has nothing to do with SpongeBob, but more or less personally with me. With uh, with the captain here, um, I'm sure you have heard in the news recently the passing of of an entertainer who who meant the world to Captain Eric in in such a profound way. And although I loved Gallagher and the the smashing of the of the watermelons, which we have to acknowledge in this moment in time. Because I, I just remembered of, uh, is it Dougie Williams? Who's that character from, from the last episode to use the, uh, the brick background for its title card? Um, but that character in, in the episode of, uh, of SpongeBob, oh, there he is. Yeah, Dougie Williams. Yeah, Dougie Williams, the comedian from uh, the episode Squirrel Jokes, who came out to the crowd who said, you know, let me just get past, you know, all the jokes and I'm just going to get to the part where I smash, you know, the, uh, the, or he throws the pies at the crowd. He doesn't smash watermelons, but he acknowledges that everybody really just wants to see this one ending bit of his in which he just gets the crowd all messy with, with pies. Gallagher, although was a very smart and, you know, at times in his early specials, a thoughtful comedian. He had some wordplay that were, you know, certainly of its time, uh, entertaining. Everybody really wanted to see this end bit that he had in which he would put watermelons on a stump and then smash them with a mallet. And if you were in the first couple rows, you would show up to the show, usually in a white T-shirt to get it messy. But uh, yeah, that's what everybody wanted to see. And uh, yeah, that that was a, a loose reference in Dougie Williams there for Squirrel Jokes, which is just this weird, you know, coincidence that Squirrel Jokes has the uh, the brick background in the same way as our, our episode uh, for today. But I'm not talking about Gallagher as far as the entertainer who has a profound effect 
on me. I'm talking about Kevin Conroy, the voice actor for Batman through a plethora of different forms of media. And that character is as early in my life as I can think of in that voice. So I have a rough time really accepting that he's gone. I got to be honest with you. I really do. And right behind SpongeBob, right before SpongeBob, Batman is is so important to me. Everybody who knows me personally either knows me for really liking SpongeBob or really liking Batman. And uh, I'll I'll get more into Kevin and what my feelings are with his passing at the end of the podcast. Um, I know that there are those out there who uh, want to just... That was a little Al Pacino there for you accidentally. Ooh, uh, um, there are those out there who, who, you know, if I don't get right to the SpongeBob stuff, essentially, you know, those, those are the messages I don't like getting. And, uh, it's not that I'm, I'm kneeling to those demands, but I, I actually, like, I understand it. I get it. This is a SpongeBob podcast. And Kevin Conroy surprisingly doesn't have many roots through Nickelodeon. He actually, uh, surprisingly in his, in his longstanding career, hadn't been at Nickelodeon much, and, and that was a shock. He primarily was on the Nickelodeon show Welcome to the Wayne. So if you're a fan of that, there's a, there's a nice little Kevin Conroy connection to Nickelodeon there. Uh, so we'll get into uh, Funny Pants, as is our SpongeBob episode of the day. And after I'm done covering that, if you don't mind, as um, just as an important part of my life i just like to have a few words to say about kevin conroy and uh his passing but uh funny pants here is one of the most clever spongebob episodes i've seen up to date at first i wasn't really sure if i liked this episode uh as much as as any of the ones we've seen up to this point in season four but with funny pants it recycles a lot of ideas and tropes that we have seen in SpongeBob SquarePants a decent amount up to this point or enough to know, hey, we, we think where this story is going, you know, in this one direction. And this story subverts a little bit of those expectations. A few of them are still met, but they are met in a roundabout way that is still unexpected. And, and I'll get into that with uh, with what I mean. But I, I got to say, over my time of watching this episode, because let me tell you, when the captain is feeling down, when when a when a great entertainer is is who means so much to me is is gone, I tend to turn to the pieces of media that make me laugh. SpongeBob is one of those, and not every episode can make me. Uh, belly laugh or bring me to tears but with an episode like funny pants I was like oh boy if there's ever a week that I need to to laugh and watch some Spongebob this is one of them and what I found in watching this episode in a in a new way was was profound I I really just wow really appreciated this episode a lot more than I I may have earlier in my life but funny pants here the second half 
of the 65th episode of SpongeBob SquarePants first premiered on September 30th, 2005. It was storyboard directed by Luke Brookshire and Tom King, who wrote it alongside Stephen Banks. Our animation director is Tom Yasumi, our technical director is Vincent Waller, and our supervising producer is Paul Tibbet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this episode, which, by the way, is a debut for these writers here. This is their, their first episode, and I feel like going into this, this episode was written with all of those parents out there in mind who absolutely find SpongeBob so annoying and complain possibly to them through emails or snail mails of of how much they detest SpongeBob, how much they find him annoying, his laugh annoying. And it's one of those things that SpongeBob's laugh, which is at the center of this episode, is annoying. It's an uplifting kind of laugh. It is infectious. It can kind of make you laugh in certain moments. But let's not cut hairs here. SpongeBob's laugh is annoying. But that's the point, you know? It's like walking out of Star Wars and turning to somebody and going, Darth Vader is evil. And there'd be a silence and you go, yeah, he is. What? Yeah, that's the point. Isn't that obvious? Why do you have to say that? In in that same way, if somebody complains about SpongeBob of, oh, he's an annoying. Well, yeah, that's that's the character. There is charm in that. Very much modeled after Pee Wee Herman. Pee Wee Herman himself is meant to be an overly obnoxious, overly annoying character, which if you enjoy that kind of you know, character, that kind of humor goes just so far all the way back around to being funny. When Pee Wee Herman is standing on stage and just takes a roll of tape and starts taping his face up to plug his nose up like a pig and just does obnoxious things like a child, it's it's funny. Not everybody's going to find that hilarious, but everybody in that room who enjoys that humor understands that it's annoying. They get the joke. So being on the outside, pointing to it, and just pointing out the obvious, I, I don't know, it just never sat right with me. It's like, well, not that you can't, but just why? why? Why even make it sound like a negative? So I just feel like this episode, because it was centered around Squidward's dread at first over SpongeBob's laugh, it, it must have just came from that that place of like, there's parents and people out there who find this sponge so annoying. And everywhere they go, they have to hear his voice. They have to hear his laugh. Sponge mania at the making of this episode has completely taken over the United States. SpongeBob is a cultural icon that is being referenced in movies, in TV shows. He's showing up everywhere. Macy's Thanksgiving Day parades. The movie is a massive hit. So... The first part of this episode, Act 1, is completely written for all of those people who hate seeing SpongeBob everywhere and who find him annoying and they, they feel like Squidward. The plot of this episode is very simple. 
Although it takes turns I did not expect, or one where one would expect a, a classic SpongeBob episode to go. And this is where more complex writing is coming to SpongeBob SquarePants. The, the beginning of this episode starts out very simply, and we've seen episodes like this before, where SpongeBob, from the moment of Squidward waking up, is just annoying him. In this way, though, through a very simple saying that is repeated from a previous episode where he says the phrase, another day, another dollar, he wakes up Squidward from outside of his house. He's screaming to wake up Squidward for another day of work. Squidward answers SpongeBob's cries. And when SpongeBob says, another day, another dollar, Squidward replies in the most dad jokish kind of way, you know, more like another nickel, which is just, you know, amplifying the fact that they work for the cheapest man in Bikini Bottom and he's not getting paid a dollar. You're not getting paid a dollar. It's another nickel. SpongeBob hears this very slight chuckle of a joke and won't stop laughing about it. They express that for the next 24 hours, SpongeBob is just laughing out loud to himself another day, another nickel, and is just telling all the customers another day, another nickel, and thinks it's the funniest thing in the world. And we're following the perspective of Squidward and his annoyance over SpongeBob's laugh specifically because he won't stop laughing. Even later that night, while he's laying in bed, he can hear SpongeBob laughing from the pineapple. Now, at this point, during the next day at work, Squidward is rightfully annoyed to the brink of insanity. Anybody in his situation would find themselves, you know, really losing it. If you turn any piece of music on loop for an extended period of time, it's considered torture for people. Which, you know, unfortunately there have been those those stories where even, you know, the most mundane children's songs have been used in in various ways like that in parts of the world. And you don't want to be in a situation where you're listening to a song time after time after time again, unless it's just the greatest song in the world and it's one that you're just like, hey, put that thing on loop. I don't care. Three days from now, I will still be jamming out to this song. But imagine to yourself listening to just SpongeBob's laugh for 24 hours straight, putting headphones on your head and listening to SpongeBob's laugh nonstop. Even the most dedicated SpongeBob fan out there has a tap out moment in their future. I'm not saying that I could outlast you, but I'm saying you have no proof that you, you could. So let's leave it at that. But um, Squidward is is fed up. And SpongeBob at some point, and this is a day later now after hearing this joke, has a sharp pain in his stomach or in his side. He starts feeling this pain going on. And Squidward, and this is, you know, this is a moment where it is kind of scummy of Squidward, where he sees an opportunity to get SpongeBob to stop laughing. I don't like the 
the entry of opportunity because SpongeBob genuinely seemed hurt as to whatever was going on in his system. Although Squidward's lie and his intentions, his reasoning, those are understanding. It's one of the most understandable reasonings that any character has needed to have in SpongeBob history. But his his exit off of this highway here, I don't I don't agree with it. He should have waited. But he takes this opportunity and goes up to SpongeBob and acts very concerned. This is I know the word gaslighting or the term gaslighting gets thrown around a lot today more than it did yesterday. This is genuine gaslighting where you go into a situation knowingly with a purpose to lie and to alter reality for your own benefit to someone else, to lie to someone else. And in this situation, the benefit is, of course, for Squidward to not hear SpongeBob's laugh. To be fair, though, the request is is not that bad, and we'll get to that. But Squidward comes in to SpongeBob super concerned. Some of the most concerned that we've seen from Squidward, and it's all acting. Man, what a sociopath in a way, right? But uh, comes in and he addresses SpongeBob, hey, are you feeling a, a pain in this part of your body? And, and SpongeBob is, of course, you know, he's worried about it a little bit. He, yeah, that there is something that, that feels off. And Squidward mentions that it's got to be SpongeBob's laugh box. Hey, you've been laughing a lot recently. And comes up with an illness to SpongeBob that when one uses their laugh box so much, it could strain it to the point that it will deteriorate. It'll explode. Something will go wrong and you won't be able to laugh anymore. So what you need to do is not laugh for the next 24 hours. And that's it. So I got to say, that's why I meant the request is really not that bad. It's not like Squidward is saying, you know, never laugh for the rest of your life. That would be really bad. He's just saying, don't laugh for a day. But this is one of those situations where if Squidward would just approach SpongeBob and, you know, even just challenge him, make it a fun challenge. I'm surprised he doesn't know how to handle this guy after all this time. It's his coworker. It's his neighbor. Present it in a fun way. Hey, SpongeBob, I'll bet you a, you know, Krabby Patty or something. You can't not laugh for 24 hours. Make it a bet with Patrick or make it make it something exciting. Put something up with Mr. Krabs on it. And, and you know, there could have been more with Squidward here instead of just making up an illness that truly bothered SpongeBob. And this is where the subversion takes place. We have seen episodes where Squidward is overly annoyed with SpongeBob or other characters go through their annoyance of SpongeBob. And we also have these episodes from Squidward's perspective in which we see him lie about a situation for his benefit. And we watch from his perspective where whenever he gets his way, he really doesn't. Squid's day off when he lies to SpongeBob and puts him in charge and wants to take a day off and he doesn't go home and enjoy himself the entire day. We watch him deteriorate 
further and further into madness, and he doesn't get to enjoy his day off at all. And we get to see what happens, the backlash of that lie. In Graveyard Shift, when he makes up all of the lies about the hash-slinging slasher to Spongebob, but everything he said ends up coming true. And it backfires completely on him. He ends up becoming just as scared as he was trying to make Spongebob. So we have seen this happen before. Normally, what I would say what would happen in this situation is that Squidward gets his way, Spongebob stops laughing, and the rest of the episode follows Squidward, where now that he has stopped Spongebob completely, now he is starting to hear all of the other noises around him, which ends up being worse than Spongebob, and it backfires. That's one way you can have it. Or where he gets rid of Spongebob's laugh, but wherever he goes, all of these other, you know, sounds coming from different things are just recreating SpongeBob's laugh and he can't escape it. That's where I would think this episode would go since we've been following Squidward up to this point. But once he tells SpongeBob, hey, you got to not laugh for 24 hours or your laugh box is going to, it's going to go bye-bye and you're not going to be able to laugh ever again. SpongeBob takes that seriously, and the baton is passed to SpongeBob for Act 2 of this episode, where we now follow SpongeBob going about his day where literally everything around him is trying to get him to laugh. We saw through Act 1 of this episode how the simplest dad joke can make SpongeBob laugh uncontrollably. A level of torture... May I remind you that was later used with a simple knock-knock joke in Sponge Out of Water. When Plankton is taped down to the desk, SpongeBob is used as a torture device. And it it stems, I got to imagine, partly from episodes like this. And uh, in episodes like this, the idea of the funny box reminds me of the funny fuse that Cartman came up with. I can't watch this episode without thinking of the episode of South Park, the 10th episode from season five. It's called How to Eat with Your Butt. And in this episode, it's picture day. Kenny shows up impressively in a handstand so that his butt is peeking through his parka And hilariously, the only one who finds this funny is Cartman, who finds this, like, hysterical. And he takes Kenny's school photo and has it printed on on milk cartons as a missing kid, which, is is there any milk companies still doing this around the country? Does anyone know? Or even in the country, in the world, is this a practice at all? In any part of the world, are they still, uh, Printing missing kid is that a, I can no I can Google it but at least at one point in history it was it was more prevalent to have pictures of missing kids on milk cartons it was a trope I saw in so many TV shows and movies but Cartman has this picture posted of Kenny's uh, butt photo and to his surprise the next day there are parents a pair of parents who show up to South Park 
who legitimately have butts where their faces should be. And Cartman, when he sees them, believes that he shorted his funny fuse because he saw something so funny that he wasn't able to laugh. He didn't laugh when he saw these people. And by the end of the episode, you think, well, maybe that's maturity. Maybe that's some growth where you're you're caring of the situation and the dilemma they find themselves in. And the the harm, you know, that they caused and the stress that they caused these parents, at least at first. I mean, eventually by the end of the episode, these uh butt parents, the Thompsons, find their son who ends up uh being Ben Affleck who is currently the DCU's Batman. So there is a nice roundabout way in this episode that we can connect things. I'll be talking about Batman later. Anyway, as I was saying, the idea of the funny fuse and Cartman's belief of like, wow, I saw something so funny, I can't laugh, completely reminds me of this episode where SpongeBob, after 24 hours of successfully not laughing is able to reemerge into the world only to realize that he is unable to laugh. And he has lost the ability to even produce a laugh and that he believes that by not laughing for that 24 hours, he actually, in fact, did more harm to his laugh box than good. And now through this kind of third act, we now watch as SpongeBob you know, goes through life back to the Krusty Krab, to Mr. Krabs, depressing over his inability to laugh. I think earlier in the episode when SpongeBob was thinking about being in a situation where he can't laugh or that his laugh box was ruined, he thought of himself inside of an iron lung kind of device. And a good day to you, sir! And uh, it's, it's no joke if you've actually ever seen one of those things. And... It, it's a genuine fear that SpongeBob had at some point in this episode being in a situation where he's unable to laugh and something else having to laugh for him. But now he finds himself in this moment where he legitimately cannot laugh. Now, that doesn't make things not funny if you're unable to laugh. If you find yourself in a situation where you you can't laugh, doesn't mean that you don't have a sense of humor. You can certainly lose it, but, uh, you know, I, I, I genuinely think, you know, mentally, we, we still have ideas that go, oh, yeah, I like that, or, oh, yeah, I don't like that, and we, you know, all have some sort of idea what we like and what we think is funny, so if you find yourself at one moment in time where you can't use your voice to exude laughter, I, I'm sure you would still enjoy hearing jokes or seeing things that are funny like a, like an airbag in a pie truck that is also a pie. I think that is genuinely funny. It's, that's a moment in this episode that happens. And if that were to happen in real life, or if they just told you, like, yeah, you're driving this pie truck, just so you know, inside of the steering wheel, we have a, a, a chocolate cream pie just in case. And you go, wait, well, just in case what? I'm, if I get hungry? No, no, if, if you get an accident or something, that'll, you know, that'll make it funny. If if you get a pie in the face instead of an airbag. 
Uh, apparently, the shine of coins is enough to make Mr. Krabs laugh. That's a uh, that's his level of humor in this episode. And I don't know what happened, but at one point in this episode, Sandy completely loses her tail, which was an original design choice early on in season one, where Sandy was designed where her tail was inside of her spacesuit. And then it was a design choice to have her tail outside, which is objectively better because now you can tell she's a squirrel and not, you know, just some ordinary rodent. But uh, yeah, Sandy loses her tail at some point in this episode. And I think this is where her scientific side really started to shine more so than any of the other likes that Sandy was into. Over the course of these next few seasons, they really dig into Sandy's love for science, which was expressed in the earlier seasons. But why does Sandy have so many books on laughter? It's obnoxious. It was one thing where she was into space and building a rocket and building other devices, but I just felt it was obnoxious that she had all of these books on laughter and all these things that she was giving to SpongeBob when, you know, he was worried he wasn't able to laugh anymore. According to SpongeBob, though, to his credit, he read all of those books. And even after all of that information was soaked in, he is still unable to laugh. I I do love the sight. I hate seeing SpongeBob depressed, but I do love the sight of Squidward in a fez. And if it just... If it takes SpongeBob in this moment to get Squidward in a fez, I'm okay with it for for a second. But then uh, he really he really needs to come clean to SpongeBob, which he does. He notices that SpongeBob's crying now, and this is where we get back to that original idea where it backfires, where SpongeBob's crying and his wailing is just as loud as his laughter, but is ten times worse. And Squidward runs over to SpongeBob. And comes clean to him and lets him know that he made up everything about the laugh box. And what is genuinely funny is that SpongeBob comes to terms in this moment of, oh, wait, this entire time I could laugh. And then just boom, just can laugh and decides to go, you know, into a laughing fit. Squidward finds enjoyment in the fact that SpongeBob uh, took all of his, you know, gaslighting seriously and was sad about it, and was able to laugh the entire time. And once Squidward is laughing obnoxiously over the situation, which he was matching SpongeBob's laughter at at first, but at some point SpongeBob stops laughing and turns into Squidward early on in this episode and finds Squidward a little bit annoying and is like, wow, man, take it easy, closes the door on Squidward. Squidward is still laughing, And of course, as things have to happen and backfire on Squidward, just like he made all of those occurrences of the hash slinging slasher occur, all of the sudden Squidward finds himself just completely losing it in his throat and something happens to him. He ends up waking up in a hospital that we have seen already a decent amount this season and Squidward lost his his laugh box. In fact, the laugh box is a real part of your neck, of your uh, esophagus, and Squidward messed it up, or there's something, you know, 
wherever he pointed it to. But he stressed his out, I guess, according to the medical staff, Squidward had the most unused laugh box of any fish or creature they have ever seen. And so once Squidward was laughing so much, he just completely tore out his laugh box. But luckily, he has a friend who is able to share a part of their laugh box to save Squidward so that he may laugh again in life. Because Squidward, it was sad to see him in the moment where he thought he's not going to be able to laugh anymore. And it's a good performance by Roger there. But as he looks around the room, it's it's really funny that when he hears friend, he looks around at all these other characters who who have come to see Squidward in the hospital. So he does have people who care for him. But he looks over at Sandy, Mr. Krabs, who only didn't do it because they wouldn't pay him. He looks over at Patrick, who, you know, says nope. And then he looks over at SpongeBob, who reveals that he gave up a part of his laugh box to Squidward, who I'm sure you could guess now has SpongeBob's laugh and is now stuck with SpongeBob's laugh, at least for the remainder of this episode. And that is, ladies and gentlemen, Funny Pants, an episode that, although, like I said, takes well-known themes and tropes of SpongeBob, weaves them in an impressive way that goes in directions that I don't think any of us could have called. I could have seen this episode not staying away from Squidward and, and torturing him in a way like that, but I liked seeing SpongeBob under the challenge of not laughing. I, I don't like seeing SpongeBob depressed, but in a roundabout way, it still ended up backfiring on Squidward, who ends up being left with SpongeBob's laugh by the end of this episode. I, I like this episode. I really do. And, and I enjoyed going through it, seeing it in a completely different perspective. One last thing to mention of this episode. This was the last episode that Todd White who goes by Michael Todd White as well, worked on. He was a character designer and crew member on SpongeBob SquarePants through the first four seasons of the show, working all the way back, ironically, on Sandy's Rocket, which I I just had mentioned, working through season three on episodes like Plankton's Army and SpongeBob Meets the Strangler, and working all the way through season four, uh, from Fear of a Krabby Patty all the way to Funny Pants and even was a character designer on the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Once uh, Michael left Nickelodeon, he pursued his passion of painting on a full-time basis and since leaving has published two books of his artwork. And in the podcast description, in both the video form and audio form, I will have a link to his Marcus Ashley page, which you can view all of his works that are available for purchase, but also his book, The Devils in the Detail, uh, which you can purchase on that site as well. Uh, so thank you for your contributions to the world of SpongeBob SquarePants, Michael. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, and please check out some of his work. Uh, it, it is absolutely uh, gorgeous pieces and and it's all subjective so uh it, but you can at least acknowledge 
when something is done in such a physical aspect like painting, you know, especially off of, of the digital means, you can look at it in a completely different sense. And I, I always love looking at new artwork. I'm, I'm always appreciative of the artists that make it and uh, those who, who really commit themselves to a world of, of art and creation. So thank you. Thank you for, for your contributions. And honestly, for anyone who I've never spoken of who worked on SpongeBob up to this point, who has worked on the show, thank you for your contributions. And thank you for joining me on this week's episode of I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. Before I let you go, though, I do want to say a few words about the passing of Kevin Conroy. You are not my father. I am not a disgrace. I am vengeance. I am the night. I am Batman. When I was growing up, if I wasn't playing Sonic the Hedgehog on my Genesis, I had one of three fictional characters on my television screen. The three Bs, Big Bird, Barney, and Batman. I'll always hold a special place in my heart for those other two, but undeniably for any young kid, the introduction of Batman can be a life-changing moment. He's objectively cool in most of his iterations and has undeniably the most iconic rogues gallery of any single superhero to ever exist. Batman wasn't always on this level of cool and iconic for the mainstream audience of this world, and it wasn't until 1989's Batman film, the one directed by Tim Burton, that opened the collective third eye of a whole new generation into the world of Gotham, and the realization that within the pages of DC's comic books over the years, some of the greatest stories of the Cape Crusader have been told, beautifully drawn, and no longer was the public perception of Batman as a goofy and campy television property uh, to continue, but to, as we know him today, as one of the greatest literary stories with some of the greatest adaptations in all of entertainment in so many different mediums, Batman has some of the greatest comic books, movies, television shows, and there's not a single other superhero out there like him. Growing up in the 90s, other than the live-action Tim Burton films of the time, the one piece of Batman media that was widely circulated was the 1992 Bruce Timm-produced Batman the Animated Series. What Tim Burton's film did for the audience who only knew Batman as Adam West, rest in peace, the animated series did for Batman for those who only knew of him from those early DC animated television shows like Super Friends, and it just brought an entire new landscape to the world of Gotham, a whole new world to play in, and it completely changed the game and revolutionized how to adapt a comic book into an animated series. How insanely lucky were we in the 90s that a mere almost two months later, the X-Men animated series would drop, and that's iconic in its own right, so both of them happening within the same time frame is, is insane. But although I certainly wasn't watching the premiere of those shows at the time, once they were on video and regularly on television, I was hooked on the adventures of this millionaire who wanted nothing to do with his wealth other than to be a superhero at night. And as a kid, it wasn't just watching Batman take down a continually growing rogues gallery of colorful characters and, you know, the ongoing pursuit of his greatest nemesis, the Joker, voiced by Mark Hamill, 
who is the beautiful counterweight to Batman in this series, and his cohort in crime, Harley Quinn, who is actually created for this series. And, you know, I mentioned this show is iconic, but think about that. I'm not even at the iconic part, and I already mentioned the debut of Harley Quinn. When writing a good story, there are writers out there who can certainly keep you at the edge of your seat and your eyes glued to the page. But for as long as acting has been around, it's not simply words that can take an audience and keep their interests. It takes an extra level of performance, and not just being able to simply use your voice, but know on how to use your voice and, and when to use it properly. Being conscious of a deeper level of the story that the audience themselves may not be aware of. Good performers think deeply about the characters they play, fill in the gaps in their head, and connect the dots for emotion, and are able to convey that either on stage, in front of a crowd, on a movie set or TV set in front of a crew, or in a booth with a team of sound engineers and directors. Kevin Conroy, born November 30th, 1955, was the actor who was handed the baton to play the role of Bruce Wayne and simply didn't just wave that baton around in standard motions that everybody would expect, but stared lovingly at that baton, put care into holding that baton, and moved that baton in ways that to this day are felt around the world in such an unspoken manner. It's simply not enough to embody a rich playboy by day and a vigilante badass by night to play Batman. And it's not just playing a, a young boy continually dealing with the loss of his parents. There is so much more going on behind Bruce Wayne than there is time to divulge into that here. But each and every one of you who have dealt with trauma in their past would probably feel off if somebody tried to conceptualize your life in only a few sentences. There are so many layers on top of us, and with what Bruce Wayne went through as a kid, you have to imagine that to unpack that emotional baggage, it, it would take a lot of time and a lot of effort. And in my opinion, Kevin Conroy is the only man who has been able to fully unpack that baggage and has been able to reorganize it in a way that works for him and is able to fully embody not only that Bruce Wayne and those decisions that he makes as Bruce with that sadness behind him, but how to vocally carry that over into Batman, how to distinguish between the two so seamlessly and for it to be sensible in the world. You can understand how Commissioner Gordon could have a conversation with Bruce Wayne and then meet up with Batman later that night, and it doesn't sound overly goofy. Voice actors do not get enough credit for their role in this country, and for their role in the arts, for their role in entertainment. And I'll give you one example with Kevin Conroy on just how deep a voice actor's role can mean to somebody. Being a child of divorce, my, my parents divorced amicably when I was young, and still to this day maintain a strong relationship to some degree. But for a young kid around the age of four or five, it still is a pretty tough thing to deal with. And subconsciously, 
when I'm watching the Batman animated series at the time, and my dad is bringing me to comic book stores on the weekends, and I'm buying Batman comic books, I didn't realize this, but the idea that Bruce Wayne as a kid could go through such a tragedy, but could grow up and then just want to make sure that no one else has to feel the way he did that night is in in so many ways how I feel right now as a person. I've gone through some pretty rough experiences, and at the end of the day, I would love to create or be a part of things that can, hey, just like these shows helped me get through rough days and rough times, especially in the world of Batman, I want to help be a part of that and help someone else out there who might be dealing with something very much in a Batman-like way, except I, I'm not going out at night and getting out in a car and in a suit and trying to be a vigilante, but subconsciously, that's why I was attached to that character so much. It wasn't just because it's Batman and being a superhero. And when I'm reading all of those comic books that I'm getting with my father on the weekends in various stores throughout the, the state, we would just travel and visit places. No one told me to start using Kevin Conroy's voice as Batman. When I was reading these comic books, I had experienced Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne. I had experienced Kevin Conroy. I had seen the Adam West Batman movie. I had seen the old cartoons. I had many different Batman to choose from. But subconsciously, I chose Kevin Conroy. So all throughout my childhood, I am reading these comic books, and it's just Kevin Conroy in the back of my mind. It's Mark Hamill as the Joker in the back of my mind reading these books. No one's telling me to do this, and so many other people out there are having the same experience as me. And it's it's not even just like, oh, it's a 90s thing. Kevin Conroy's role as Batman extends in the 2000s through continually playing Bruce Wayne in the same animated universe, Batman Beyond, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited. Then you have the Arkham games in the later 2000s, the early 2010s, some of the greatest video game adaptations of any fictional character. The Arkham Asylum games would be up there in the top 10. Asylum in particular. I, I love that first one. I know in varying degrees they get better, but that first one is just iconic to me. And here I am as an adult playing a Batman video game. Here's Kevin Conroy yet again. And it's because, honestly, of that role in the back of my mind that Kevin plays that I feel a, a deeper feeling for this loss that it's simply just being hey a, a voice actor passed away here's this character they played and, and it's beyond just what the character means to me but 20 years from now when I read a Batman comic book I'm going to be thinking of Kevin Kevin Conroy's voice his manner his demeanor everything about how he comes off as both Bruce Wayne and Batman will play out in my head. And uh, it's it's just, this is the voice I subconsciously decided for the rest of my life. And I'm just blessed 
to, to have that because it would be a blessing to have just one recording of the perfect Batman, but there's decades of his vocal work to look at and choose from and to listen, and it will certainly be remembered for years to come. I have no concern about that. Everybody is going to have their Batman that they use, and I am just blessed that this was my Batman. I am absolutely blessed, grateful. I was honored to meet Kevin Conroy a few years ago at a convention, and regardless of the line that was waiting for this man, it was worth every single minute before I was in front of him. And although you weren't given, you know, a lot of time to interact, he, he signed what I brought. I was able to to thank him for his contributions to the world and what he means to me. And he embraced me, made me feel in that moment like, hey, you know, like he genuinely cared for his fans. And I hope, I hope, knowing that to be able to betray Bruce Wayne and bring that sadness, he had to pull from some emotional places for that performance. And I, I just hope that he was able to truly feel the importance that just that role brought to so many people. And in when I say unspoken manner, it, it is due to how many of us read comic books, hear Kevin Conroy's voice, we might not even say anything. How many people out there hear his voice when reading a, a Batman story and you've just never told anybody, oh, I hear Kevin Conroy's voice when I'm reading this and it's Batman. I'm sure it could be other Batman for you out there, but... From Kevin's own perspective, from his own words, it does take a deal of sadness behind the facade of Batman to properly nail the performance of Bruce Wayne. And regardless on what kind of suit he's in and who he's talking to, that sadness, that pain is behind his face. It's behind the decisions he makes. And Kevin, being human, certainly pulled those emotions from some place in his own experiences and through that performance on television for people to watch, in video games for people to play, or anything else Batman-related where they heard his voice, it just helped resonate for generations of fans of Batman. I don't think this is more evident, though, than this story from Kevin Conroy himself, who was volunteering at a soup kitchen somewhere in New York City after the tragic events that took place at the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. This was a few days afterwards. Someone within the soup kitchen eventually figured out that he was the voice actor, Kevin Conroy, and coaxed it out of him in conversation. After receiving confirmation, this individual shouted out to the room that the man that's been serving them for, you know, a few days or so was Batman. And there was this silence in the room. And there was a few jeers in the back of some claiming BS and for him to prove it. And there's one Batman line that, of course, Kevin will belt out anytime he needs to prove that he is, of course, Batman. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman. He belted it out. And there's another silence that trickles over the room before a joyous eruption. And this this just feeling of 
in that moment, everything was okay. Somebody else in the room later on walked up to Kevin and they asked him, how does it feel to be Santa Claus? And I don't think I could bring up any other story that could just show you the kind of guy Kevin Conroy was volunteering at a time like that. And wasn't talking about this story days afterwards. Wasn't on radio or shouting out, hey, I did this. This was something he brought up years after the fact. And I think about it and yeah. He is essentially Santa Claus for me. He's brought me more joy than the actual Santa Claus. And guess what? Kevin Conroy existed. I met him. I embraced him. He was a real man. And and Santa being a idea, of course, can bring so much joy to the world. But guess what? So does Batman. And out of all the Batman out there, most will agree that Kevin Conroy was Bruce Wayne, was Batman, and cemented that many times over time and time again. It, it also helped to have the best Joker in Mark Hamill and, of course, other villains, a whole myriad of characters that just really made a cement in those early Batman animated series episodes like Mr. Freeze. Who could forget characters that were just breathed an entire new life through that series? And it's because of Kevin and his performance that helped nail characters like Mr. Freeze who were built with a more emotional connection between Batman and the the issue at hand. It wasn't just simply, you're breaking the law, I'm taking you in. There was something else that, that was going on out there. Those who have worked with him have poured their hearts out on social media to give you even more insight on who this man was. And his work speaks for itself. Even up to this year with the release of Multiverses, the legacy of Kevin Conroy as Batman will continue moving forward. Thank you, Tony, for that. And I gotta say, guys, as sad as I am to say goodbye to my Batman, I am grateful to have him as my Batman in the first place. Kevin, wherever you are, thank you for what you've brought to my life. I love you, and I will continually hear your voice as the Cape Crusader, the Dark Knight, for many stories to come. I know I'm not alone in that sentiment, and I also know that future generations will have no trouble at all in understanding why Kevin Conroy is revered in this role so much. Thank you for all of you who have listened through this. This means the world to me. Batman means a lot in the same way SpongeBob does. They're both characters that have a, a deeper love in my uh, soul. And it is really due to their voice actors, along with the writing that comes behind them. But their voice actors mean the world to me. So thank you for all of you. Thank you to Kevin Conroy. Rest in peace, sir. You will be missed. And Thank you for joining me on this week's episode of I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. Please stay safe, be kind to one another, and come aboard again next week to another episode. 
Yeah, I mean, I am vengeance, I am the night. You know, I am, that's the iconic line. Um, so many of the, the, the lines that I loved most are the ones that reveal the soul of Batman. Because he's such a dark character, and it's all about the pain that resides in him. So, like, I think the best Batman movie of all of them, the live action and the animated, is um, Mask of the Phantasm, which was the first animated Batman movie, because it shows the whole arc of the development of the character. And you see what happened to him as a child. And then he, he has this scene at his parents' grave where he's begging with them to release him from his vow because he's fallen in love for the first time in his life with Andrea Beaumont. And he, he didn't think he'd ever be able to love. And he's breaking down. And that scene, I, I loved that scene and I loved playing it. And I was really proud of it because you have to show the humanity of the man. Um, those moments where it shows his humanity and, what's the, and the struggle within him uh, are the lines that I've had the most fun with. Thank you.